let's say you're an inbound distributor and let's say your overseas parent have like a marketing strategy or sort of market penetration strategy, the HO do not believe that the inbound distributor should pay for that. That doesn't fly for that. The other one, the HO also would look at with your ideas. If you have an inbound distributor, you are in losses and you're paying a big royalty fee back to your parent, they don't like that because also the rationale is you are in losses and you're selling products that you're paying a big royalty for, but it doesn't say, it seems like that royalty is very successful or that product is very successful to pay a royalty in Australia. You are listening to Australia's podcast for accountants, Tax Talks, the podcast to grow your firm. Welcome to episode 395 of Text Talks. This is Heide Robson and thank you to DocuSign for sponsoring this episode. We have spoken a lot about transfer pricing in theory. Today, let's apply that to some real-life examples. Let's go through five transfer pricing scenarios with Benedicta Ulrich of Anderson Australia and see how this whole theory actually pans out in reality. Are these five examples based on cases you have worked on? More or less. That, like some of them, are, I will have multiple situations with them. One example is more an avatar for several similar clients. Yeah. So we have a few examples of how a small to medium enterprise can safeguard for transfer pricing risk exposure. That is also in proportion to the compliance cost. So here, what we're looking for, we are looking for situations where the transfer pricing risk exposure is not enormous and there's no need then to go in and do a, a full-blown transfer pricing documentation report. But there's ways that you can do like a sort of a lower volume on that. However, still have really quality that showcase and demonstrate that you are doing the right thing. Example number one, inbound distributor without losses. Let me just quickly explain a little bit more what this client is in example one. So it's an inbound distributor. So that means related parties overseas sending products into Australia and our Australian entity is then distributing it. If it was the other way around, you would call it an outbound distributor, but this is an inbound distributor with an annual turnover of 40 million, hence definitely has to do an IDS, an international dealing schedule, and a profit before tax of 3.5%. So the first thing we need to check is whether they qualify for simplified transfer pricing record keeping. And so for that, to look at, let me just very quickly look at the different methods we had. We have seven criteria to qualify for the simplified transfer pricing record keeping. Yeah. Also called S-T-P-I-E-K. How do insiders pronounce that? Steeprick or Steeprick or so? Or nobody S-T-P-R-K. Oh, I see. Nobody. Yeah. Okay, yeah. good. The first one is that the end of turnover must be less than 50 million, which we are. We only have 40 million of turnover. And related party dealings must be less than 500,000, but that does not apply to distributors, correct? To stop you that. It's not. These are not seven criteria. So there is seven options. So they're not multiple, they're not together. It's different options. So you don't go one, two, three, four, five. <laughs> you go in and you select which one is, but they all have to. So before you even look at this, so to be eligible for any of these seven options, 
you have to not have sustained losses. So you can't have any restructure within the year. So what Benedicta is saying that before you start looking at which option might apply, you first need to check whether you even qualify for the simplified record keeping. And you qualify if you had no losses and also haven't done any restructuring. If you tick those two boxes, then you can start looking at which options might apply, which option, just one singular, which option might apply. You only need to meet the conditions for one option and then you're good. If you now look at this example. Yeah, okay. Mm -hmm. The first one in theory would apply. The first option in theory would apply because it's less than 50 million. But related party dealings might not be less than 500,000. And also, I think this first one doesn't actually apply to distributors, correct? Yes. So, so it does, that doesn't work. Good. So that means we go to the second option. And the second option is also any turnover of less than 50 million and related party dealings are less than 500,000. I think for distributors, it, you don't have to have less than 500,000 really international related party dealings. Oh, really? You can still qualify for it. I think for a lot of distributors, it's really hard to be under 3.5. Okay, so you are saying related party dealings, they don't have to be under 500,000K. Are you sure of that? It's international related party dealings involving royalties, license fee, research and development arrangement. They can't be greater than 500,000 combined. Those type of international related party dealings. Oh, I see. Okay. Otherwise, it doesn't make sense because the distributor, if you have an income of, like, let's say, 40 million, as we have, you are an inbound, so you're buying your products from somewhere, you will have to have products for at least, you know, you probably think you will buy for about 20 million to resell, right? So very good point. This 500,000 threshold is not all related party dealings, but it's only very specific related party dealings like it, royalties. Yes, it's all to do with license fees, royalties and research and development arrangements. So anything that's set up IP related has to be under 500,000. Okay. This could apply. And the other thing is, so if you have international related party dealings over 500,000 of these sort of IP related like royalties, license fees and research and developing arrangements, it just means that you will have to do transfer pricing documentation for them. You, know, you could still apply for the distribution activities you have, but if you had dealings of that nature, of the intellectual property nature, then it just means you have to have a separate transfer pricing documentation for that. And yes. also, if you have any uh, finance arranged with your group, you also need to have separate transfer pricing documentation for that. And that's actually a very good point. We already mentioned that in episode 385. But it means these different options, these seven options, they never give you a carte blanche for all your transactions. They only ever give you a carte blanche, a simplified record keeping for the transactions that are covered by this option. Yes, yeah. Correct. It still doesn't mean that your your services, administration services, if they have a certain size, that they're covered either. So I actually, I had a client and I've had very, very few clients that purely fits in on this one. So you always, as you said, you know, have it carte blanche. You normally use a few of them if you can. So for example, this, this example is, can't say the country because then you will guess where it's coming from, but they're literally, they're selling, it's a big multinational group and they're selling really upmarket sewing machines. And the distributor here in Australia literally just buy them in and sell them. 
they had a healthy margin on doing that. And that's that's all they did. They didn't need to do any marketing or extra things to sell these machines because they were quite unique in what they're doing. So that's why we came up with this and we used, we realized they were eligible for the simplifying transfer price record keeping for the distribution option. So, uh, but I will also just explain, so, but you still have to provide some sort of memo showing why you are eligible for this. Yes. And then you also have to say which method you're using, correct? Yes. So in this case, we were using like a profit method because we using, you know, we were showcasing the header profit margin above the 3% as required. So we were just having like a, you know, a little explanation. This is the company. We're providing evidence of, I think, the last three to five years that there was no losses there. Remember, we, you had to have no sustained losses. We confirmed that there had been no restructuring during that year. We didn't have any royalties, license fees above 500000 That They didn't have any impact and they didn't have any finance arrangement. So they qualified under this option number two for distributors because their profit before tax to turnover ratio was 3.5% and hence it was over the 3% threshold. Yep. And so then... Since they qualified, they prepared a memo where they outlined that they qualify under option two. Yep. And then they also outlined which method they use. Okay. It was one of the two profits methods. Yeah. And then they outlined how they came up with their transfer pricing. Sorry, that was incorrect what I just said before. So in terms of the method you're using, when you're doing your IDS, if you were eligible for one of the these um simplified uh, transfer pricing record keeping options. So on the IDS, remember I said, you also have to disclose what transfer pricing method you're using. So if you're eligible for this, you actually put that, one of the methods is this. So you put, uh, it's I think it's number seven. So code seven is that you are eligible for one of the options in the simplified transfer pricing record keeping. I see. Okay. So in the IDS, you don't actually have to say which method you're using. No. All you have to say is I'm qualifying for the simplified record keeping. Yeah. So you can imagine also that's going into when the HEO is collecting all their data, they can see, they might want to see, okay, we want to see if this is right or not. For example, if you have lost the same, same year and you have said that I'm eligible for this, that doesn't align. But again, if it's all good and they can see it, it's matching, okay, your operating margins or profit before tax is above 3%, then it's all good. And it's also like, it's an even uh, more deterrent factor for the HEO to actually challenge your international related party dealings. Okay. Actually, can I ask you something about this, not necessarily this inbound distributor, but inbound distributors in general. I assume with this inbound distributor, they actually bought the machines and then they sold them. So they weren't operating on a commission basis, but they actually bought and sold them and hence they did an IDS. And we touched on it last time we spoke where you said that if you have an Australian entity that basically just works on a commission basis, but the actual sale is actually directly between the customer and the entity overseas, then you said that the overseas entity actually has a permanent establishment in Australia because they have a dependent agent in Australia. So the problem is here... So let's say you are helping a company in the U.S. selling. Yes, you can You can make it. You have a company in the U.S. that is selling into Australia and that company in the U.S. has an Australian company that has some contractors. Yeah. 
operating in Australia, but not many. Most of the work is done from the US. Yeah, but if they're paid a commission on the sale, that means that their incentive is to contact the customers here in Australia to sell these products. However, yep. the, the products is bought directly from the US entity to the Australian customer. So that income that you, the US entity is getting from the sale to the Australian customers, that's the DMP and that's the, the tax office want to see that income taxed in Australia. You have an agent there that is facilitating that sale. Does that make sense? Yes, yes, it makes sense. But what if there is nobody in Australia actually and everybody who is facilitating the sale in Australia is actually based in the US? Well, that's different then. Then you don't have a presence in Australia. Okay. So this issue only arises when you have people on the ground and if they are contractors. And then it comes down to whether it's a dependent or an independent contractor, correct? Correct. We don't see it often, especially not directly to customers, but you can see it more business to business. So for example, you could have, it's a bit risky to use that, you know, the commission or agent, an agency, because tax office will always be aware of well, how much that agency is doing to facilitate the sales. So for example, they can't conclude contracts and they can't negotiate or set price or anything like that with the Australian customer. Okay, good. So as long as the uh, contractors in Australia don't sign, don't negotiate prices, etc., then they don't create a PE. But if the contractors in Australia sign contracts, negotiate prices, etc., then you would have a dependent contractor and hence you would have a PE, correct? No, but also that you're not assisting in that sales. Like you're not promoting and you're not helping the Australian customers to make that passage. Okay, but if you have contractors here that are talking with customers? Yes, then you will have to put yourselves through that entity. Okay, otherwise you create a PE. Yeah, or, or you can you, you can pay tax on the sales in Australia. You have to disclose that as a PE. Okay, so it really all depends on what the contractors are doing here. Yes, yes. And we're talking about, so this is where this substance in your first example, so this is where the substance not is not equaling the form. Because the, these are doing all these things, the contractors, they're doing all these things to facilitate a, t a sale, but they're only paid a markup on their cost or a commission on the sale. And it's not the same as the full, let's say their cost is 1 million and they're paid, you know, a markup on that cost and they might be paid a commission on the sales that they never see in comparison to see the full sales amount taxed in Australia. So you can see the, the tax office, why they, they don't like the other one and why they want to see the income of the full sales, because it's already the substance of the sales be carrying on has already been provided by that, that agent that, that resides in Australia. Of course, it's very difficult to work out how active, unless you actually look at the contracts and whether the agent signed, whether the contractor signed or not. It is difficult to actually determine how dependent or independent the contractor is. And those overseas companies are probably also not very forthcoming with the information, what exactly the contractors are doing in Australia. They will, of course, argue that everything is done from the US and marketing is done from the US and the contractor in, in Australia is, is not really doing much 
<laughs> Nobody knows why they're really there. You know, that's how they will present us and of, present it. And of course, it's very difficult as a tax agent then to advise on that. And it's also probably would require a full scale audit by the ATO to get to the bottom of this. Yes, yes. But but it's still you run that risk by not doing the right thing. And it's, you know, then, then you can be adjusted to, you know, 10 years of income <laughs> going back, for example. That's a huge risk. So we have some clients in the past where they have like a, like a liaison office here, either sort of to translate with the supplier of, and, and a lot of times I've seen in agriculture industry. So if you have like a, an Asian parent company, they want to buy like milk powder, for example, here in Australia, they buy directly from the supplier, but they'd like to have an office here that has nothing to do with the actual sale, but just going and for, for example, quality check the milk powder from the dairy processor, or they secure that the relationship between the, the Japanese parent and the Australian supplier. Yes, and the Australian supplier probably also prefers delivering to an Australian entity than to an overseas entity, correct? But they don't deliver, the, the sales goes directly between the Australian supplier to the overseas. But it's just having that the relationship sort of manager of that and making sure also that they're getting the best, you know, sort of quality of the product okay. that they're so sourcing. The lines are blurred. So a few times I've worked on it. You have to be very clear in the agreement between the office that the overseas party have here and what they're actually doing and what they're not doing. So to make sure that you can prove that they are completely not facilitating any of the purchases or anything like that. They're just making sure that they are negotiating with, so the parent company is having the relationship with the supplier and getting the right product. Okay, so it's basically similar to the other situation I described where the um, sale is directly to the entity overseas or the entity here in Australia basically just facilitates the sale. It's basically the same, just the other way around, that the Australian entity facilitates the purchase, but the actual purchase is made by the entity overseas. Again, we have to be, so legally you have to be very careful what words you're using. So facilitates sales, you should say that. It's more you're making sure you're like a relationship manager and quality. So you, you, you're seeing the product that they're up to a certain standard for, for what you're needing and sort of more like an, it's more industry, like you have an industry expert and making sure that you get the right products on time and, and there is the, enough supply. I see. So the same argument then you can also use for the example I used where the sale was actually to the overseas entity if the entity in Australia is only a relationship manager and just does quality control or similar, then there would also be more of an argument for not having a PE in Australia than correct. Yes, Jumping yes. Back to if, the original. if you had some very sort of set rules that you had nothing to do with the success of the sale, yes, you could do that. But again, you, you sort of also, you know, with the effort you have to provide that you are not dependent, you might, you might as well just put it through that entity that you had in Australia. Was that still example one or are we already at example two? No, <laughs> that was example one. So that took some time. Well, we also, we covered a lot of other things that might come later on. So that's absolutely fine. Now, before we talk about the example of an inbound distributor with losses and discuss under what circumstances this entity could still use the simplified record keeping, even though it does have losses, 
Before we do that, let me play you a quick word from our sponsor, DocuSign. Hi, my name's Diane. I'm an accountant and I'd like to make a confession. Last financial year, I seriously screwed up. I left my paperwork in a taxi. Yep, confidential contracts, tax file numbers. I was mortified. It's why this year, my accounting firm is using DocuSign. Going digital has saved us time, money, paperwork and stress. Make no mistake. Sign up for your free trial at docusign.com.au. Next time, DocuSign. Example number two. Inbound distributor with losses and no simplified transfer pricing record keeping. So example two. So I'm just going into, we're still in the inbound distributor. However, you do have a, a low financial performance or you have losses and you have an annual turnover of 20 million. So suddenly you're not eligible for the simplified transfer pricing record keeping any of the options anymore. So that means we need to do the full documentation? Yes. And this is where I'm going in and saying, well, you're just an inbound distributor, not just, but you're an inbound distributor. You are an SME. You are doing the right thing. Otherwise, you just had some issues, financial issues, uh, because of some economic factors that it was outside your control. So again, instead of preparing like full-blown transfer pricing documentation, there is things you can do to demonstrate that you are what you're doing is reasonable and you are trying to do the right thing by the Australian uh, transfer pricing requirements and guidelines. So you're saying there's actually an ATO guideline for medium-risk inbound distributors. So if you're an inbound distributor and you don't qualify for the simplified record-keeping rules because you have a loss, then there is this ATO guideline that might still make it easier for you. Yeah. So what this is, is that the ATO have produced a few sort of risk assessments of how they see different, because there is a lot of inbound distributors in Australia of, of various, in various industries, sticking with the general ones. So they've just provided guidelines to where you should aim to sit in terms of your operating margin. So it's not just if you are in losses, but it's also if you have low a low performance in comparison to what they see you should be. So or where they see you should be as an as a, as a inbound distributor. So I use them in cases like this. So it's not they're not saying this is what you should do and you're not running risk-free, but at least it gives you uh, an indication of what, how the HU views you. So you should aim to be in the medium. Of course, if you are in the low risk, you don't have any issues in terms of documenting that you're not in the right zone. However, it doesn't guarantee you that the HO won't audit you or challenge you. It doesn't guarantee it, but it protects you. Yes, if you are in losses. So what I'm just saying, instead of, again, doing an expensive benchmarking analysis, you can say, well, ideally we should have been in this bracket that HO views as a medium risk. We are not. And then you should go in and do what we call a commerciality analysis. And that is just showing that to get you up to itemize everything that's gone wrong that year, for example, I, I had a few examples here that, that you lost a major customer and itemize and detail how much do you think that cost you. You had supply chain delays and most businesses do this analysis to make sure because they're all all businesses in business to make a profit and be successful and grow. So they would have all these issues. They can itemize that and then showing 
okay, if we take all of these economic factors out that made losses for this year, we are actually underneath the medium risk. But again, you still have to do like, I would do like a, a memorandum explaining the business you're in, you know, disclose the international related party dealings, what we're doing, and then refer to this DHO's sort of medium risk uh, range. And then explain why you're not in that if you take all these factors out that you would be in there. So that's a good ending word for example two. Uh-huh. So example three is inbound intercompany loans. Example number three, inbound intercompany loans. So for finance arrangements, the ATO has quite a few years are, are very keen on making sure that these are in accordance with the arm's link principle. And it's not just enough to benchmark that you have an interest rate that is, you know, from a bank's, you know, like call over bank and get, get their interest rate on a business loan. You have to literally have like an economic analysis showing all the different facets of that finance arrangement and prove why that is not at arm's length, but following the arm's length principle. And that can be a quite onerous exercise, as you could imagine. But we can apply yeah. option number five, correct? Yes. So option number five. So again, as we had with all the other ones. So you have to have no losses, no restructuring. It can sometimes be hard to fo- follow in under the low-level inbound loans and outbounds because they have to be in Australian dollars. Usually when I see companies which are pretty much eligible for this option is that it's not in Australian dollars and it's really hard to get around that. So anyway, if let's say you are in, it is an Australian dollar, then the interest rate for the 2023 three year is 5.65. So for an inbound loan, it just means it can be no more than 5.65%. Yes, because this is what you are paying out of Australia. Hence, it reduces the profit in Australia and hence it must be no more. Yes, but not only that, the thing with the interest rate also did a deductible that. Yeah, because that's how you reduce your taxable income in Australia. Yes. Hence, there is a cap how how high it can go. And these ones changes so... As you could imagine, last year, this threshold was 1.83. So this actually also, it's it's following what is the, the RBA's interest rate plus the banks. So they, they are reasonable. So that's example number three. So now we come to example number four. So that is low value intragroup services. And that is option four, correct? Yes. Yep. Example number four, low value intragroup services. Also for a lot of multinational enterprises, they have administrative and management services coming in or going out, as you can imagine, because they will be coming wherever the head office is. They will always provide some sort of management or administrative services. Again, these are not really adding on to your core value of what you're doing. However, you know, a lot of times part of what international enterprises do. So this option is just making sure that Instead of doing, again, a full-blown transfer price documentation for these, if you fall within these criterias for the low-value intergroup services, then you can use this as a, as a guideline. And in this example, we don't know what percentage the services are in... In my example, no. So there, there is a de minimis rule. 
And that's always hard to say. <laughs> if it's you know, 2 million or less combined value of all services received and provided, you have the diminished rule. You don't need to provide additional transfer pricing documentation for it. Does the 15% rule still apply that services received must not be more than 15% of expenses or services provided must not be more than 15% of revenue? Does that still apply? No, that the amount is greater than 2 million. Yes, then you just have to make sure that it's less than 15% of total expenses and revenue. But below 2 million, the 15% doesn't apply because under 2 million, we don't need to worry about transfer pricing documentation anyway. Yeah, but then again, you can then price these with a markup on cost of 5% or less for services you receive. And for 5% and more for services you provide. If you are below 2 million then 5% is your threshold. If you receive so services... If you below 2 million, you don't need to do any transfer pricing documentation or have any. you don't need to have any markup on them. Okay, good. So the 5% markup rule doesn't apply either when you are below 2 million? No. So below 2 million, no 5% threshold for markup, no 15% threshold for expenses and income. If you're over 2 million, then you're intra-group services must be below or above 15%, depending on whether it's a provided or received service. And you also must stay at 5% on cost markup. You don't need to do transfer pricing documentation if you have any of these, which you follow any of these. I've had quite a few examples here of the streamlined transfer pricing record keeping because I see a lot of times it doesn't get used a lot. We train our staff a lot in it because a lot of times you can actually apply that and it gives the taxpayer that doesn't have an enormous amount of risk exposure and obviously also don't have the sort of resources to pay for a lot of compliance advice or work to be done. So they can still come to a professional and, and get help without paying too much. And it sort of also sort of just makes, you know, it, it still gives them enough protection to showcase that they're doing the right thing. Okay. And when you say streamlined record keeping, you mean simplified record keeping, correct? I mean simplified transfer pricing record keeping. <laughs> okay, good. Perfect. Good. And then we have one last example where you have a mismatch, where you have a cost plus arrangement, correct? Yes. Yes. Example number five, cost plus arrangement. We see a lot of that, especially in the small to medium enterprises, and, and that is aligned with a lot of startups. So what we see, for example, let's do an inbound. So it could be like an American or US company, and they want to test out the Australian market, and they're, they're selling some digital platforms with a license. So they're just starting out in Australia. So they're setting up an Australian little entity or an entity with a few people there and without selling, just more sort of making sure that they have an entity in Australia and start, start their business. And they're basing this on a fully cost plus sort of arrangement. So all Australian cost sort of setting up company here and, and working out who can we sell this product to, uh, et cetera, et cetera, without selling. They are uh, paid on a fully, a total cost plus model. As they grow, and we see this again and again, and you have also touched base about this. So as they grow, the more the Australian entity starting to do. And they start also to maybe liaise directly with customers. And then suddenly they start to, you know, like maybe they're actually doing more to make sure that these digital platforms are getting sold in Australia. So it's just to be aware of when you start out, there might be the, the right way when you're starting, 
But if you start to conclude contracts and or even liaise with customers, or even if you start maybe uh, doing, you know, you get some feedback back from the Australian customers, and you have to do some maybe some upgrading of of the the digital platform that you're selling. Suddenly, your functional profile is changing. That's basically the example we discussed under example one at the end, correct? Yes, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. We sort of started early, and I've seen it again and again. It's not. But you're trying to to do the wrong thing. It's just like being because you a lot of times with these sort of companies they grow so fast that they forget to sort of adjust the form because the substance has changed what they're doing. But so the problem is basically that they start having a PE in Australia, correct? Because they start having potentially yeah, they have a few. They'll start getting a few risk exposures and they're doing more what they actually. So the problem is that the AGO will only see that the markup on their cost as the taxable income, as opposed to what they're actually doing, which is uh, facilitating that these sales are actually working and they're hoping they might even, you know, amend the digital product or, you know, with upgrading or some maintenance things, etc. So you have two potential problems. One is that the overseas entity might have a permanent establishment in Australia and then everything that that entails. And then you also um, potentially have a transfer pricing problem because what the um, startup in Australia is paid is probably then no longer matching the costs they incur in comparison to what they're doing. Yeah. Good. Okay, perfect. So these were five examples, very helpful examples about transfer pricing. And apart from the um, fifth example, a lot of it was about the uh, simplified record keeping Correct. I mean, simplified record keeping plays a big role in in this. Correct. Yes. Yes. And no. Also, the second example was more like when you're not eligible, you are in losses or low performance. What can you do? What can you do without doing a full blown transfer pricing uh, documentation report? Yes, that's true. There is this ATO guideline for medium risk inbound distributors, for example, and they probably have other guidelines for other industries yeah. as well. But it's not only that that guideline is sort of just, you know, like the measurement to what to get to. It's more like a lot of businesses are doing this anyway. Like what has caused the losses? What has caused the low performance? How can you show with it, you know, in terms of detailing that, that it's economic issues outside your control? Yes, that it's not that you charge too little, that you transfer too much profit overseas. Something happening that threw everything out the yeah. window. Yeah, but that strategy doesn't work three or five years running. Yes, it, you can get away with it for a year. The other thing is if you're starting out too, like, or if you're having like a marketing penetration strategy in place or something like that, but that's that's also like I could have that over a few years. But again, you need to have some very strong commercial analysis to support that. And one thing the HO don't like, so if you are like, let's say you're an inbound, distributor and let's say your overseas parent have like a marketing strategy or sort of market penetration strategy, the HO do not believe that the inbound distributor uh, should pay for that, if that makes sense. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So, so that doesn't, that doesn't fly for that. And the other thing is the other one, the HO also would look at with your ideas. If you have, you know, you are an inbound distributor you are in losses and you're paying a big royalty fee back to your parent, they don't like that because also the rationale is you're in losses and you're selling products that you're paying a big royalty for, but it doesn't say, it seems like that royalty is very successful. 
or that product's very successful to pay a, a royalty in Australia. Yeah, a third party wouldn't pay huge royalties on something that is selling at a loss. Correct. Benedicte Ulrich of Anderson, Australia, in Melbourne. So your reasonably arguable position, your rep, has a lot to do with whether you qualify for simplified TP record-keeping or not. If you qualify, it is much easier to document that you have a rep because you basically don't really have to. All you have to show is that you qualify for the simplified record-keeping and that will give you your rep. But if you don't qualify, then of course you need to put a lot more effort into documenting your reasonably arguable position. In the next episode, episode 396, Andrew Andreev of Andreev Lawyers in Sydney in Adelaide will talk with you about asset protection, about asset protection silos. So how to structure a business into operating entities, a finance company, an asset company, and then also a general service company, aka HR company. Then in episode 397, we will talk about asset protection layers. So nothing is watertight, contractual and slash or structural insurance, the corporate veil, asset protection trust, and so on. Nothing protects you 100%. But the more layers you put on top of each other, the more protected you are. So that's what we will discuss in episode 397. And then in episode 398, we will talk about asset protection trust, also called equity split. For example, when your family trust puts a mortgage onto your family home to protect the house from your business creditors. And then in the two episodes after that, Andrew Henshaw of Velocity Legal in Melbourne will talk with you about foreign trust. When does a foreign trust become a resident trust and vice versa? When is one better than the other? And why is there so much potential danger in the question whether a trust is a resident or not? And then, of course, because all of this is quite confusing, Andrew Henshaw will use a New Zealand trust as an example in episode 400. But that is still more than a month away. So next week, Andrew Andreev of Andreev Lawyers will talk with you about asset protection silos. Until then, thank you for listening and thank you to DocuSign for their support. Bye for now and see you in the next episode.